Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rillo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we round out our discussion on our Hemophilia 101 series. Guys, I think this has been an awesome topic to to discuss, again, personally, because these cases always come at 1 a.m. when you're on call. And I know that after our discussions, I definitely feel better about taking care of these patients. And hopefully you guys can feel the same way and our listeners feel the same way. Yeah, I I definitely agree. And it's always good to just review the key concepts when it comes to the management of of a hemophilia patient. But today, I'm really excited to talk about acquired hemophilia, which is a slightly different beast than what we talked about in the last couple of episodes. Yeah, these ones, when when you do see one, it's um, you don't really forget very quickly. They're usually pretty impressive presentations. Let's get into it. That sounds great. All right, guys, I do want to tell you a story before we jump into today's case. Um, I had another kitchen incident. Uh, Many of you may recall the kitchen incident from a few months ago that ended up needing stitches. Uh, But but I had another one. Oh, Ronak, you should you should have bought the Dermabond. We I think I told you, you know, always have that Dermabond on hand because it probably would have helped you in this case. What happened? It it, it would have. Um, I somehow managed to shatter a glass Pyrex container as I was just trying to open the lid. It just exploded in my hand. Glass went everywhere. I cut up my hand pretty bad. Like last time, I thought a good idea would be just to hold a, a paper towel to it. Um, and uh, despite my best efforts to tamponade it with pressure from a paper towel, it did not stop bleeding. But the chicken was cooking on the stove. The show had to go on. So, you know, we, we made it work. But um, yes, I cannot be trusted in the kitchen anymore. This is <laughs> twice in one year. Oh, man. Well, I hear my fire alarm going off downstairs. I did leave Logan to to broil up some chicken parm for us tonight, so hopefully that's going okay for him too. We're keeping my fingers crossed for you, Dan. Let's hope you get dinner. <laughs> um, all right, guys. Well, again, speaking of bleeding, I'm glad that we have another case to discuss with our Hemophilia 101 series. And this time I have actually a pretty interesting case that I had also seen when I was on call because, again, that's when these patients come in. So slightly different than last time, if you guys are open to chatting about this one. Yeah, let's go for it. All right. So this was actually a case that I saw in the emergency room uh, a few weeks ago, actually. This was a 75-year-old gentleman with a history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and he had been diagnosed with CLL about two or three years ago. Um, unfortunately, was was lost, lost to follow-up, but had never required treatment for his CLL. Nonetheless, he came to the hospital complaining of bilateral lower back pain. Um, And then he had also noticed in that same area that he was having a lot of pain, uh, some significant bruising. And he felt other other review of systems was also positive for kind of some lightheadedness and dizziness some shortness of breath. Um, And so, you know, he's in the ER. Uh, and the ER gets a set of labs on on him, and they note that he's pretty anemic, uh, and they had also done coags on him as part of the, the workup, given this bleeding, and he had an elevated PTT. So 
immediately thereafter, there was a stat page to the emergency room, and here we are. So guys, after hearing that presentation, what is going through your mind? Well, you know, I'm very curious as to why his PTT is elevated. That's that's the first thing. I mean, got a guy who's bleeding, and one of our screening coag tests is abnormal. That's pretty worrisome. You, you want to know how you can how you can fix this, and oftentimes. You know, if, if we have the, li- the luxury of having a baseline PTT that's not elevated, it tells us obviously something has changed. And at this point, you're wondering, is it, uh, is it that he's consuming his factors? Is it that he's, you know, had an autoimmune event against one of his factors? Or is there some medication or supplement that's influencing his coagulation system? Yeah, Dan, I, I liked how you really talked about look for a prior value because everything we talked about when it comes to hematology, we want to know has this patient had a normal value before? What's the trend looking like? Maybe this patient always had an elevated PTT. And one of the things when a patient has a clotting tendency and always has an elevated, mild elevation in their PTT, that could be a sign of something like antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. That antiphospholipid antibody can interfere with the PTT assay. And that's something that's really important to know. Whereas in this patient, it's a you know clearly obvious case here where the patient's got bilateral flank bruising we talked about looking for tracking bruising. This is concerning for that retroperitoneal hemorrhage, especially with this anemia. And we're really thinking in this case, well, if this patient had a normal PTT before and now they have CLL, which is prone to develop autoimmune conditions, maybe he has some sort of an acquired factor inhibitor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what we were kind of thinking. And so, uh, you know, he was anemic. The ER had properly decided to transfuse him some blood because his hemoglobin was less than seven. He was symptomatic as well. And you're absolutely right. So so we had, in our case, the luxury of this patient having had PTTs when he was seeing somebody a couple of years ago as a, as a consult for his CLL. And at that time, his PTT was around 34, so in the, in the normal range. And this time, it was up to 56. He said he does not take any medications. He's not on any like warfarin or anything like that as an outpatient, you know, it, it definitely begged the question of, of what was causing this abnormality. So knowing that this is the case, you know, and we kind of talked about this in our prior episodes, I think the ideal next step is to do a mixing study. And that's what we had ended up doing in this situation. And so our listeners will recall that with the mixing study, we're mixing normal plasma, which has normal amounts of factor with our patient's plasma, and we're measuring the amount of time it takes for a clot to form. And you're doing this at time points zero, one hour, and two hours. So in a situation where someone is missing a factor, these, these values will correct because the normal plasma will replace whatever's missing. In this patient's situation, however, the mixing study did not correct, meaning that when we added normal factor back in, the time got maybe a little bit better, but then it started going back up again. So by the two hour mark, it was already rising again. And so clearly something was off there. And so when you hear this kind of pattern, guys, what is going through your minds? The number one thing that's going through my head is that this patient has an antibody that's interfering with the function of one of the factors that are important in the PTT pathway. The reason why that is, is because if you just think about it, if it corrected initially, that antibody didn't have enough time to neutralize that factor in the control plasma, that normal plasma. 
And then with time, at that one-hour mark, two-hour mark, we see prolonging of the PTT because this antibody now has had time to interfere with the assay. Particularly when we correlate this clinically in this patient, this this guy is bleeding, so it really just fits with the acquired hemophilia phenotype. And I think this really gets into a very important concept that we want to let all of our listeners know, and that's when we think about doing these mixing studies, we want to make sure that a priori there's not already an interfering substance present. If the patient is on a, a DOAC or on a, some other anticoagulant, these mixing studies will not give you very reliable information because there's already some interfering substance within the assay. So again, in this case, we, we've ruled all of that out, and we know for this patient that doing this mixing study, there's something interfering with the assay, and we're concerned for some autoimmune process related to CLL, which commonly causes autoimmune processes. The one thing I just wanted to point out that I learned from this case before I tell you guys the next part is a reminder that when we say correction of the of the times, it has to correct to normal. So this this patient's PTT drifted down a little bit at the one hour mark, but it wasn't normal. It was never normal. And so that's very different than what we saw with our hemophilia patients previously, where their levels would correct into a normal range with the addition of extrinsic plasma. So that was very important that I wanted to point out and something I didn't previously know. And so, as we also know then, the next step from here is something is abnormal, so we go ahead and we check those factor activity levels, and that lets us know which protein uh, is not functioning appropriately. So we went ahead and did that, and in this case, it was his factor eight activity level that was at less than 1%. So Dan, what do you make of this information? I mean, how do we know that this guy doesn't just have hemophilia that we're now diagnosing at the age of 75? Well, unfortunately, this time we have his prior APTT that was in the normal range. And we could also, we could talk to him. And just, if we understand that this is a gentleman who didn't have a significant bleeding history over the course of his life, it seems unlikely that it would take this long for us to figure this out. So for me, this is something that's changed. Beyond that, we have additional evidence from our mixing study, which is essentially a, a screening tool to determine if there is an inhibitor. So all this data coming together, it seems that this man has an acquired hemophilia A or an acquired factor eight inhibitor. This is far and away the most common of the acquired factor inhibitors that are out there. Of course, we <laughs> unfortunately have the capacity to generate autoantibodies against a variety of different factors. There's You can develop an inhibitor to factor nine, factor 10, factor 11, factor 13, factor five, factor seven, you know, a whole whole range of these important clotting proteins. But for whatever reason, it seems that factor eight, there's there's a propensity for people to generate antibodies against this. And and like you'd said, you know, seeing that the factor level is low is kind of the proof you need to, to figure out which of these factors has been affected. And I just wanted to bring up going along the lines of that, because we know that so many factors can possibly be affected in each arm of the coagulation pathway it's critical to just keep in mind which factors are important to test for in each arm of the clotting cascade. Remember, we have the intrinsic pathway or that PTT pathway, and we have the extrinsic pathway or the PT pathway that both go activate the common pathway to drive down and form a clot. Remember that lucky number seven is the extrinsic pathway or that PT pathway. And the dollar bills, 1, 2, 5, and 10 are the common pathway, and everything else is the PTT pathway. And so that's factors 8, 
9, and 11. Those are the most critical to test for in an isolated PTT abnormality. Obviously, you'll test some of these other factors as well, but common things being common, factor 8 and 9 are probably the highest yield when we think about an acquired hemophilia or even just a hemophilia in general. Mm-hmm. 100%. And and so, guys, something else that was noted in the report that the lab had reflexively done thereafter is that they reported Bethesda units. And that was something that I had never seen before with our congenital hemophilia patients. So let's talk about that for a second. What is that and why is that even relevant? So the Bethesda unit is basically, it's the outcome of the Bethesda assay. And this is the titer, essentially, of your factor eight inhibitor. So, you know, in other measurements of autoantibodies, we get a titer. And uh, in this case, the way they do this test is sort of similar to the mixing study where you're mixing sort of one-to-one ratio of patient plasma to pooled normal plasma. You are mixing the patient's sample plasma with pooled normal, but you do it at different ratios and essentially at, at different dilutions. You're adding an increasing amount of pooled normal plasma relative to patient plasma, and then you're seeing what the change in the activity level is. And the dilution at which the activity level is restored to 50%, that, that's what gives you your, your titer. And so and let me just give you an example. It's the easiest way to do this is to just work through one. Say you start now with a, a factor eight activity level at 6%, and the mixing study suggests there's an inhibitor. Well, you're going to perform a, a two-to-one dilution now with two parts normal plasma to one part patient plasma. And You'll see what that yields. Say that yields 21% activity. And then you do a dilution of one part patient plasma to five parts normal. And that restores you to 50% activity. Well, that 50% threshold, you now take the inverse of that dilution. So it was a one to five dilution. So that's five, the five Bethesda units. So it's however many parts plasma, normal plasma it took to correct one part patient plasma to 50%. That's your Bethesda unit. A little bit weird in terms of how it's actually calculated, but essentially the higher the number, the more of this autoantibody there is. That makes a ton of sense, Dan. I, I had no idea what a Bethesda unit was, and I remember when I was on consults, one of the benign hematendings, she was telling me, well, I mean, yeah, it's five Bethesda units, so clearly this is a relatively strong inhibitor that's present. And in my head, I'm like, are we talking about Bethesda, Maryland? What What is happening right now? Uh, but that's it. that's so simple. It's just that you're using more of a normal plasma to get a correction. It, the antibody's so strong that you need more parts of a normal plasma so that you get nor- more normal factor activity levels. And remember, a normal factor activity level that we talked about isn't that is about that 50% range. Uh, so, so that makes so much sense. I mean, that sounds great, but like, who cares? Why does it actually matter what the Bethesda unit is? So yeah, Bethesda units in general, they are... There's something we want to know. Uh, it gives you a little bit of an idea of how severe somebody's condition is in, in this autoimmune context. It also has implications in uh, hemophilia patients, uh, congenital hemophilia patients who develop an inhibitor to, to factor eight. In, in the congenital hemophilia setting, we think of patients with a fairly low titer, something below five Bethesda units, as uh, folks who will have their inhibitors disappear spontaneously once the their exposure to factor eight has has ceased. It, it seems 
a little bit weird to think that these autoantibodies will just go away on their own, but essentially at that low titer, at that low level, we will expect that there's some degree of senescence of those autoactive D cells. Higher than that, again, in the congenital setting, these are folks who it takes longer for that to go away. They may require some degree of eradication therapy, and we will see sort of an increasing amount of autoantibody with future exposures. They're more likely to have that anamnestic immune response. Now, in the, in the acquired hemophilia setting, this autoimmune context that we're working in with, with our patient here, the, the Thes unit, I think of more as, one, telling us how much work we have to do, because these patients, in my experience, have all required some degree of eradication therapy. And, and we'll get to what that means in, in just a little bit. And then as you're treating the patient, as you're trying to eliminate the production of this autoantibody, you can look at the Bethesda unit as a way to see how much progress you've made uh, and, and how far you've been able to suppress the production of this abnormal antibody. Uh, so it's just a nice way to, to quantify exactly how much of this autoimmune protein is kicking around and, uh, and how much you need to do to get rid of it. Got it. So the way that we use Bethesda units is a little bit different with acquired versus congenital hemophilia. So just to reiterate, Dan, to make sure I understand. So in in congenital hemophilia, if you have a Bethesda unit of less than five, that antibody may go away all on its own once the use of that factor replacement is no longer given. If they have a Bethesda unit greater than five, then that may go away, but if you ever reintroduce that factor again in the future, they may mount a response to that, and thus you would have you know, uh, these issues with bleeding that can happen. In the case of acquired hemophilia, as our gentleman has, it's just a measure of how strong this antibody is and gives us as the hematologist some idea of what's ahead of us in terms of how difficult this may be to treat, correct? Absolutely correct. And uh, another thing I'll just mention here, I uh, remember previous episodes we discussed emicizumab, that monoclonal antibody that's bispecific and does the job of activated factor eight essentially. So far as we know, there's no role for the use of that in, in acquired hemophilia or this hemophilia A. But whenever you have a congenital hemophilia patient who has developed an inhibitor, um, often it's in the context of uh, you know, prophylactic therapy with factor eight replacement on a, on a regular basis, you need to switch them off. You need to remove the exposure to that exogenous factor eight and switch them to an emicizumab-based prophylactic regimen at that point. And that's that's sort of regardless of the of the Bethesda unit titer. It's these patients with these low titers, again, in general patients with low titers, who their titer may go away and you may be able to treat them for their breakthrough bleeding. You may be able to reach for that factor eight again without worrying about that inhibitor coming back with a, with a vengeance. And higher titer patients Really, they're kind of off the factor eight for good, looking more at using activated factor seven. So that's that's sort of the downstream treatment implications in congenital hemophilia. But yeah, when, when it comes to the acquireds, it's about how bad is this autoantibody? And as you're treating them, are we making progress in getting rid of it? Got it. Okay. And so you said the golden word there, treatment. So what do we do from here? How do we treat these patients when they come in with, in this case, talking specifically about acquired hemophilia patients? Yeah, like Dan beautifully said, for the congenital hemophilia patients, we think about switching their prophylaxis to something like an emicizumab. But the way that we want everybody to think about this, our listeners to think about this, is a two-pronged approach. One, 
how do we stabilize the acute bleed? And then the second thing is, how do we treat the underlying cause? So first part of that, how do we stabilize the acute bleed? What we're doing here is we just want to force clot formation. At this point, a patient's bleeding, and we need to force a clot formation. We cannot do anything about our intrinsic pathway because we have an autoantibody against factor eight, so we can't drive down the extrinsic the intrinsic pathway. So instead, what we do is we bypass the intrinsic pathway by forcing clot down the extrinsic pathway to the common pathway. And remember, lucky number seven, that's the only thing that we need to know for the extrinsic pathway. You can give recombinant factor seven. Another product you can use is a clever name, factor eight inhibitor bypassing agent, and that'll do the same idea. You're activating clot, again, through that extrinsic pathway that lucky number seven pathway down the common pathway to stabilize the bleed. The key thing about when you give something like a recombinant factor seven, it has a very short half-life, so you're dosing that. You know, really, sometimes you have to dose that Q two to four hours, so very frequent dosing, and you really want to achieve hemostasis before you start to spread that out. So that's one thing. How do we do that? So remember, we're bypassing by forcing clot through the extrinsic pathway, with recombinant factor seven or something like this factor eight inhibitor bypassing agent. The next part is how do we treat the underlying cause? And well, what's causing it? Sometimes we don't have an underlying cancer in the background, like this case with CLL. And so what we think about is, well, suppress the immune system. You give steroids and something like either rituximab, and remember rituximab is a CD20 antibody, so it'll attack B cells, which produce these autoantibodies. So that's a good thing to do. So rituximab and steroids or oral cyclophosphamide and steroids. And for patients who have acquired hemophilia, there was a study done in a blood journal in 2012 that we'll link to our show notes. And it showed that using oral cyclophosphamide with steroids seems to have higher response rates than a rituximab-based regimen. So Steroids plus rituximab or steroids plus something like an oral cyclophosphamide. But in the case of a patient with CLL, we always think about treating the underlying CLL. So the advantage of something like a rituximab, that thing against B cells, if a, if it's a another type of B cell lymphoma in the background that's causing this, like a perineoplastic autoantibody process, rituximab might be a great choice because it could also treat that lymphoma. So again, complicated, but just remember immune suppression. And two options for that are steroids plus rituximab or steroids plus oral cyclophosphamide. And, you know, this will be pretty apparent when you meet one of these patients in your in your future uh, hematology career or in your current hematology career. They tend to bleed pretty badly. And, uh, you know, acquired hemophilia is a really serious condition. As a result, when we're talking about steroids, we're not talking about, oh, you know, hit them with 40 of prednisone and then taper over a week. These are folks who are starting out on a milligram per kilogram high-dose steroids, and they usually have a very extended taper. In my fairly limited experience, it has uh, taken a lot of time to eliminate these inhibitors. Um, I've had patients take months to, to get their, their inhibitor level down. And, uh, you know, if you have a patient who's on immune suppressive therapy, to be honest, it doesn't really make sense to check that Bethesda unit more than once a week or every couple of weeks, just because it does take so much time to eliminate these inhibitors. We can also measure factor eight levels as a way to see how much progress we're making. 
And as that factor eight activity increases, we also we know that well the inhibitor must be coming down. So those are the you know as you're putting a patient through this treatment, that's how you're determining what your response is. Of course, clinical response is important too. If they stop having new bleeding, then that's uh, that's a good marker that you're making progress. So you know keep an eye on the patient's bleeding. Keep an eye on those uh, those factor levels in Bethesda unit inhibitors every so often, and just hope that you're able to get this antibody to go away. Yeah, Dan, that was super huge and that the long haul is key. And that that's true for many of our hematologic autoimmune conditions. Something like a autoimmune hemolytic anemia, we're doing a prolonged course of steroids, and that's a good rule of thumb and so critically important. Uh, so yeah, definitely remember long course of therapy. That was awesome. And guys, I, I think these cases have further highlighted and reinforce this whole mixing study idea. You know, if our listeners take away nothing else from this, hopefully by now they're pros at working up abnormal PT and PTTs, they're pros at the coagulation cascade and also at interpreting mixing studies. Because again, this is a very confusing concept. And I think these have just been really nice actual clinical implications of when we use these really important tests that also happen to show up on our board exams all the time. So I feel like we've certainly killed multiple birds with one stone. Yeah, definitely. And, and I just want our listeners to know that, that this case actually was a patient that I'd seen at the VA. And they he we gave him high-dose steroids, like Dan said, and weekly rituximab for four doses. And we saw his factor eight activity level beautifully start to normalize, and his PTT was normalizing. So it was it was a good case. We treat we ended up starting him on treatment for his underlying CLL, uh, but you know, we you can stop these things from from progressing, and it's really important to identify. Yeah, great reminder, Vivek. All right, guys. Well, I that's all I got. Do you have any final thoughts? No, I mean just uh, yeah, autoimmune hematologic conditions are are pretty fearsome. So if you encounter one, uh, you know, treat it with pretty heavy immune suppression, and just monitor very closely. Everybody should watch Love is Blind. I know we didn't talk about that at the beginning of the episode, but throwing that in there. <laughs> I am also going to put a plug for uh, the new season of Family Karma that's out on Bravo now. So it, once you're done with Love is Blind, Throw if you need some more cl- very classy television, yeah. oh, I, I highly <laughs> what recommend. Are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> We're just going to stop it here. Let's not bore our listeners anymore with our... I got to go make sure my kitchen isn't on fire. That that sounds great. Dan's got to go make sure his kitchen's not on fire. All right, guys. Until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace.